Thanks, Stephen. It's great to see all of you and some good friends. And I love Madison Church. I, I love all the people here. And you guys are just knocking out of the park. What you do, not obviously here just on Sundays, but what you do in the community is really an example for, for many, many churches to follow in. Uh, since I last saw you, I actually moved to Chicago. But don't worry, I'm still a Packers fan. I haven't sold my soul to the devil yet. But the other thing that happened since then is I got married. And yes, thank you, Mom, in the back. That's awesome. No, and, and it's been an amazing experience. I, I, I married Joy. She's here in the front row. She didn't know I was going to do this, but could you just wave to everybody? Just wave. I know. And, and for those of you online watching and you're wondering what she looks like, she is way better looking than me, and it's only by God's grace and her pity that she married me. But, but uh, it's been an amazing experience getting married to Joy because my perspective on life has gone from about this big to this big. Not just because of marriage, but because Joy is Filipino. And, and I've, I've learned all these new things that I didn't know before. I, I now have a new perspective on food. See, prior to getting married, I was a master of cooking Trader Joe's frozen bag foods. I mean, you came to my house, I could give you uh, chicken, I could give you whatever they had in the frozen food aisle at Trader Joe's, and it was great. But Joy's a professional chef. And so she cooks all sorts of things, whether uh, here bruschetta or uh, French style steak with I don't know what sauce she put on it, but it was like heaven in my mouth, uh, as, uh, as well as Filipino food, chicken adobe and Thai food that she used to run a restaurant with. I mean, it's been amazing. People in our neighborhood ask me all the time, is Joy cooking? Because they don't want to be at their house. They want to be at my house. But I told them I married her, not them, and get away. So I have a new perspective on food. I also have a new perspective on hygiene. Uh, the rest of the world, you may not know this, cannot understand the United States' obsession with toilet paper. But Joy introduced me to this beautiful thing called the bidet. Now, I'm not going to go into details on this because you don't need to picture that. But if you go into our bathroom, you won't know what to do with the strange hose next to the toilet. But I'm telling you, it saves money on your toilet paper budget and changes your life altogether. And I know that some of you, that's the only thing you're going to take away from this message. You're going to go and hook one of those up to your toilet going home. But the next thing that I had a new perspective on is fashion. You see, prior to this, when Joey and I would actually just chat uh, on video call online. I asked her, can you just assess my fashion? Oh, I'm a pretty good looking guy. I mean, if I say so myself, I mean, could you just assess it? And she used this, these words. She said, you're what we call a fashion terrorist. Now, I don't know if you know this. This is not a good assessment of somebody's fashion because apparently I'm terrorizing the world of fashion. So Joy, who's in the fashion industry for part of her career, she dresses me. And now my friends in my neighborhood, the other day, I was hanging out in one of their garages, and they said, what's happened to you? You used to be such a slob, and now you look so good. And it's because she has expanded my horizon on fashion. She's even expanded your pastor's horizon on fashion, because he came to our wedding, and you can see there, he is wearing a Filipino barong. Now, you may not n never knew that uh, Stephen could look so good, but he looks good at our wedding. That's actually made out of pineapple fibers, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But not only that, Joy has expanded my perspective on aging. See, oftentimes when people see Joy and myself, they, they ask, so how many years younger is she than you? Is it 10, 20? We're virtually the same age. I'm only one year older than her. And so I asked her, Joy, like, I'm aging quickly. What's the key to your success? 
and it was this. It's the mask at night. And so every, every once in a while, she'll put that mask on me. And you can make fun of me, but I am reversing the aging process one mask at a time. There will be no more wrinkles and no more heavy bags under my eye. You know, when I came into a relationship with Joy, stuff in my life wasn't really working. It was just small and narrow. But when she's entered my life now, it's this huge new perspective. I've entered into a whole new way of thinking and living. Now, here's my point, and I actually do have one. I I think it's true, the same for us, when we come into a relationship with Jesus. We have a narrow, very minute perspective on life. But the more we follow him, the more we go with him, we have a little bit bigger, then a little bit bigger, and then a little bit bigger perspective on life. And soon things that we never thought we would experience, we start to experience. And we step into this whole new perspective of what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom perspective. It's a way of living where Jesus is king and we're following him and he's entering and expanding our worldview on everything. Jesus would talk about this over and over again in scriptures. He said this in Luke 12, verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This is his gift to you. This new perspective on life, this ever-expanding perspective is your gift from God. And he says, once you get that, uh, like your marriage, like the people that are close to you, don't ever let it go. In fact, he would say this a little bit later. The kingdom of heaven, another word for the kingdom of God, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. In other words, this thing is so valuable that you would give up everything else you have for it. This new perspective of living. This new way of doing things that you never thought possible. Because the way we do life, quite frankly, let's be honest, it ain't working. Jesus comes in, let me give you a new perspective. Financially, it ain't working. You're caught up in debt, you're caught up in stress, you're caught up in worry. Well, let me give you my perspective. Where you leverage your resources and you store up for yourselves treasure in heavens rather than on earth. And vocationally, let's be honest, it ain't working. You're trying to climb that corporate ladder and you feel like you just have to do more and more and more just to prove that you're worth something. And Jesus comes in, let me change that for you. Let me give you a kingdom perspective and now show you that you already are worth something. Not a label. It's not a title. It's just you're my masterpiece and I created you. Relationally, that ain't working. You have grudges and resentment and broken relationship. Let me show you a different way of living. Where forgiveness comes first. Where you do, as Paul says in Romans 12, you do everything you can to live at peace with everyone. So let me give you a new perspective financially, relationally, vocationally. But he doesn't stop there. Even politically. Even politically. And I know that's exactly the spot in the message where all of you t- tune out and you say, I'm done with this. I thought this ended on Tuesday with the election. I am so tired of the text messages and the ads. And, and now we have to talk about in church. Maybe you feel like this 
meme that I saw this week. Raise your hand if you think we should all be given free beer for putting up with this election. Obviously, this was taken in Wisconsin with that many people raising their hands. But I think that's how we feel, right? But the reality is we can't avoid it. We can't hide under a rock because this is how our society runs. This is the systems under which we must interact with. And our perspective is so messed up. Our perspective is so small and minute. And so we have to wrestle as followers of Jesus. We have to wrestle as a church. How do we engage in this? How do we have a kingdom perspective, even in this arena? Because we're going to have some sort of perspective. You know, a lot of times we fall into one of two extremes with our perspective on politics as churches and as followers of Jesus. The first extreme is what I call the personal perspective the personal or the private perspective, and that essentially leads to irrelevance. The thought around this perspective is that following Jesus is just about a personal relationship with him. That's certainly part of it. But don't talk to me about anything else. The gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is just about me and my life. It's not about these other things. In fact, those other things are dangerous if you bring them into the church. Don't talk about them. Don't deal with them. We're about souls and not votes. I used to think this way, and a church background that I'm very, very grateful for that taught me this way. They said, your relationship with Jesus is all that matters, nothing else. Don't think about social stuff, that's dangerous. And then I went to work at a Presbyterian church in college and had a very different view. Every Saturday, they held a soup kitchen, and the homeless from the area would come, and they'd line up. And there was a smell of poverty because they hadn't been able to bathe all week. And there was desperate people there just just wanting some food. And I hated it. I was so mad at the leadership. I said, this isn't the gospel. This isn't what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to win people over to Jesus, not serve a soup kitchen. And I say that in shame, because in my perspective, my understanding of the kingdom of God is that it was just about me and nothing else. It was just individual. You know, you would think that Jesus, when he first came onto this earth, if that's the way things are, that he would, his first sermon would be this, I'm inviting you into a personal relationship with me. Just ask me into your heart and everything will be great. But you want to know his first words when he preached? There are these in Luke chapter 4. He's in the, the temple and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the press free. See, Jesus starts his ministry in a social sphere, a communal sphere, and dare I even say a political sphere. He starts it in a much broader standpoint than what I was taught growing up. You see, maybe we could picture uh, the way the kingdom of God works this way. If you go on to the next slide, that the kingdom of God is made up of three realms. Yes, it's personal. Yes, you have to do your business with Jesus. Yes, it is about following him and having him transform your heart, your life. Yes, that's part of it. But it doesn't stop there. It has to be relational as well. It has to be when you interact with others and you show them the love that Jesus has in your life and you show it to them as well. But it doesn't stop there because if it's personal and if it's relational, it also has to be social and it influences all of society. 
all of the systems, even the political ones. And when we don't do that, when we just live in the personal realm, we lose people. I was in ministry for well over 20 years, and the number one thing I talked to young adults about when they told me that they were bailing on the church, the young adults who have been labeled duns because they're done with the church, they said, the reason I'm not coming is you don't address the real issues of society. You don't actually do anything. It's just kind of like a self-help thing when I come here. I want to see the church make a difference across the board. I want to see it penetrate the social realm. Because if it doesn't, what's the point? It's completely irrelevant. So there's a personal perspective which is dangerous and becomes irrelevant. But there's another perspective that's equally as dangerous that followers of Jesus and the church falls into. And it's what I call the partisan perspective. And the partisan perspective leads you to be ignorant. It leads you to be ignorant. Now, I, I love thank, uh, Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I love Halloween, uh, both very different holidays. But I, I, I love Halloween, especially my neighborhood, because we have hundreds of kids come out, and it's just kind of like a big party. And I, I can't remember any costume, because there's so many princesses, so many animals, so many football players, and so many random uh, costumes. But the one costume I remember this year was the kid whose mom obviously just gave up, or dad just gave up right before they came out and said, why don't you just throw this box on? And so they got a box, and they put this on. It was just a box head. And I remember looking into it, and, and the guy came up to me asking for candy, and I just kind of stared into the holes, and I said, can you even see in there? He said, oh yeah, I can see enough. I can see enough. But it's brilliant. In fact, I'm going to use this for all my kids next year because I don't have to go and buy them costumes. But here's my point. So many of us, when it comes to Christianity and this idea of politics, we live in a box. We put our Republican box on or we put our Democrat box on and we can't see much. And we try to filter the words of Jesus, the, the words of God. We try to filter it through our box. And, and we can see part. And there's parts that line up with our thinking, but we try to cram Jesus into our political worldview. And we're blind to other parts. I'll never forget when, several years ago, when I was pastoring a church and the riots in Ferguson had happened in Milwaukee. I was in the Milwaukee area, and Milwaukee's often the number one, if not one or two, most segregated cities in America. And we were the largest predominantly white church in the area. And I said, we have to talk about this. And so I spoke on racism. I spoke on racial reconciliation, how we as Christians had a responsibility to follow Jesus and bridge the racial divide. I intentionally did not mention any political parties. I didn't mention any slogans. I just read scripture, nearly 70 verses, about God's heart for racial reconciliation. Many people were moved by that, and, and actually incredible things happened by that, but also hundreds of people left the church after that message. I got emails from people calling me a communist and a Marxist, people attacking my kids, threatening me. I had to have bodyguards at one point take a guy away from me. And I would talk to them, people who were mad, and I asked, said, what did I say that 
wasn't just straight from scripture. And they said, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You are bringing us down a slippery slope on your own political agenda. I said, no, I'm not. You just have to take the box off. You just have to take the box off. We all do in certain areas. When we, when we wear our partisan boxes, all we can say are one issue or two issues. And, and we say, see, Jesus agrees with me here. He must be a Republican. Or no, Jesus agrees with me here. He must be a Democrat. But we are wearing our boxes and we're cramming Jesus into perspective that is limited at best and dangerous at worst. The result is that we're ignorant and we miss the full kingdom of God. And so if we're not to be a, have a personal perspective, and if a partisan perspective is dangerous, and yet we're still supposed to engage in this thing called politics, what's the perspective we have to have? Well, I think it's a kingdom perspective. A kingdom perspective, because when we have that, it's irresistible. It's irresistible. See, a kingdom perspective doesn't ignore politics, but it doesn't bow to it either. It engages it from a much higher viewpoint. This is what Jesus did, and I wish we had more time to really dive into it. See, the Jews were in tough political waters when Jesus arrived on the scene. They were, Rome, they were, they were ruled by Rome, and things were rough. The Jews were a kind of push-aside ethnic group that was taxed highly, and they wanted a savior. They were waiting for hundreds of years for a savior to be the political leader to restore Israel to its power. At that time, Caesar was ruling Rome, and he would call himself literally these words, the son of God. There's actually a common phrase at that time. There is no, under, no other name under heaven by which men should be saved other than Caesar Augustus. He believed himself to be God so much that he had his image imprinted on the coins, and it said that he was actually God on those coins. And then Jesus in Matthew 22, he, he rides into Jerusalem. Many of you know the Palm Sunday story. He's coming in on a donkey, and, and, and the people are waving these palm branches. And we, we think, oh, that's such a cute story. In fact, in churches, a lot of times our kids walk around on Palm Sunday with, with palms, and it's so cute and nice. You know what it was? The palms? Those were actually a symbol of Jewish revolt. In two wars prior to this, when the Jews fought the Romans and they lost, the symbol that they were rising up against the Roman was the palm branch. And so as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, they're saying, Jesus, take your rightful place as our political leader. Do it now. You have our vote. But Jesus, he doesn't play their game. Jesus never took political office or sought anybody's vote. In fact, he says something fascinating. He's back in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are trying to trap him. And he says this. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax, the tax that was unfair to the Jewish people, to Caesar or to not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said this, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, So give back to Caesar." What is Caesar's? And to God, what is God's? When they heard this, they were amazed that they left him and went away. Now, it's easy to miss how powerful of a statement this is that Jesus is making. 
What are you saying when he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, is a very charged statement. He's saying, yes, Caesar has his role. He's the political leader. But he's not God. He may call himself the son of God. He may say, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except for Caesar, but he's not. I'm God. And so what I want you to do is, yes, you have to obey the political authorities above you. You have to give honor to them. But you have to understand that my kingdom, my kingdom is so much bigger than that. My kingdom is not about that. I, I'm not just here to, to, to solve your political issues. I'm here to usher in something far bigger than you could ever imagine, the kingdom of God. It's no wonder they left amazed. And so he asks us to do the same when it comes to politics. He asks us to elevate our game, to bring it to a different level that others may not have gone yet. And so we could talk about this for weeks, but let me just give you a few things that I think Jesus asked us to do in learning this new perspective on politics, this kingdom perspective. The first thing is we need to honor better. We need to honor better. You know, I I find it fascinating that passage we just read. You you would think that Jesus would say, no, don't pay the taxes. Caesar is a a buffoon. Don't, Don't even look at him. Rise up against him. But he doesn't. He says, honor it. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. You see this theme throughout Scripture. You see it in Romans 13, where Paul says this, For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Honor them. Honor them. But the question remains is, how do we honor somebody we disagree with? Well, it's actually easy to know how to do that. We all have parents, don't we? I mean, we can honor our parents without agreeing with them. I mean, I disagree with my parents on so many things. They're not nearly as enlightened as I am. But I love them. I honor them. (laughs) If they tell me to shut up, I shut up right away. I owe so much to them. So how can we get to that point of honoring people again? If you're a Republican and now Governor Evers has won office again, how do you honor him? If you're a Democrat and you see Senator Johnson, how do you honor him? It's what we're called to do. And I think it begins just by humanizing people again. Because most of the people in politics, they're good people. They started out on this road to change society for the better. Now, their ideas may be different than yours, no doubt. But they are in roles that are nearly impossible, trying to make our communities, our states, and our nation better. Humanize them. When I was pastor down in Milwaukee, one Sunday, between services, I got one of our uh, volunteers said, Jason, come here. I said, oh, great, what happened? He said, you know, the governor's here. I said, uh-oh. And the reason I said, uh-oh, is I, I knew he was a follower of Jesus. This was back several years ago when Scott Walker was governor. I knew he was a follower of Jesus, but I also knew that I had led the church and said things that were very against some of the things that he had espoused from his, from his office. 
And I thought this could not end well for me. Um, but I just preached and later that afternoon I got home and in my inbox was an email from him. And he didn't bash me for anything I said. He just said, thank you for that message. Here is how it impacted my life. Went, oh, that's interesting. Weeks went on and the next couple of years went on and he kept coming to our church when he could. And even times when I was taking a public meeting for things he didn't necessarily agree with. Instead of arguing me about those things, he would send me notes saying, hey, Jason, you know, when you're getting hit publicly, here's how you deal with it. Do you want to help people in that, hear what you have to say? Here's the, some of the tricks that I've learned. My life fell apart. You want to know the person who called me and took me out to breakfast two or three times? It was Governor Walker. He does, has no idea that I'm here in Madison saying these things. But I'm telling you, we have to do a better job of honoring people. We have no idea what they're going through. We can disagree with them. We don't have to vote for them, but we can honor them and pray for them. But the second thing is this. We don't stop there because that's where a lot of churches stop. We honor better, but then we do almost the second thing that seems almost counterintuitive. We speak louder. We speak louder. Not, about, not on social media. That becomes pretty much white noise these days, although you can use that to a certain extent. But let's be honest, social media is really about rallying your own troops to make you feel good about yourself. Then we need to speak in arenas where we can dialogue and move forward at home, at, in, in legislation, in the church even. And what do we speak about? Do we speak about personalities or partisan issues? No, we don't speak about personalities. We don't ask you to vote a certain way. No, we elevate the discussion to, to the issues that Jesus cared about. And we have to speak loudly about these issues, not because we're political, but because we're biblical. We have to speak loudly about these issues, not because we're Republican or, or Democrat, but because we're part of the kingdom of God. And we have to engage these things because Jesus engaged them for us. And so we must speak loudly about the poor. Why? Because we're Democrats? No. Because we follow a Jesus whose first words were that he proclaims good news to the poor. And we have to speak loudly about caring for the refugee and the immigrant. Why? Because we're progressive and liberal? No, because Jesus was a refugee himself. And scripture is full with references of how we are to engage them and help them. And we have to speak loudly on behalf of marginalized groups, including groups like the LGBTQ that have been traditionally ostracized from church. Why? Because Proverbs says these words. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And yes, we have to wrestle with and I know these things are complicated, and I know there's not always e easy answers, but we have to wrestle with and speak about issues of sanctity of life. Because what Psalm 139 says that God forms us in the womb, and he knows our days even then. But we don't stop there with sanctity of life. We go to other issues for the disabled, the poor, the elderly. And yes, we must speak loudly on economic policies and issues. Why? Because Jesus spoke more about money than he did about any other topic. And what is modeled in the government will be followed in the home. And so, yes, we should influence economic policies. Not because we're a certain political party, 
but because we follow Jesus who said, how you handle money at every level, individual, relational, and social, is vastly important to the state of your soul. And yes, we must speak loudly on creation care because we have been given stewardship of this world by God. And yes, we must speak loudly on helping families be strong because God put us fundamentally in this unit called a family. And he wants us to serve together and love together and stay together. And we must speak loudly on gun violence because God is a God of peace. And I know that's complicated, but God is a God of peace and he hates violence. And yes, we must speak loudly on mental health because Jesus came to bring healing to every part of us, including the trickiest part, our mind. And we must speak loudly on gender equality because Jesus revolutionized the role of women, lifted them up in a society that was male-driven. He said, this is how I want my church. This is how I want society going forward. And at, in this kingdom, there is neither male nor female. There is equality across the board. And we must speak loudly for racial justice. Because God, and I know this may be a shocker, God isn't white. He's not black or brown either. He's, he's God. And at the end of time, Revelation pictures heaven as this multi-ethnic, multi-racial party going on. I'm pretty sure the Filipinos are leading singing. I'm pretty sure the Africans are dancing. And the white guys are running the sound in the back. I mean, I think that's what it's going to be like. And I realize in the last two minutes, I've offended all of you at some point. But that's okay. Stephen will be back here next week to clean up the mess. No, that's the point. I offended myself in that list. Because our view is so small of God. We've for so long tried to cram our view of God into these political things that we now can't touch because we don't want to offend somebody. But Jesus is saying, you have to touch them, because that's society. That's what I came to save. And so stop thinking in your partisan ways and start thinking in kingdom ways. And yes, it's going to be messy. And yes, you're not going to get it right. And yes, there's going to require a lot of dialogue. But would you do that? Would you speak up? Speak louder, honor better. But don't just speak louder. Act faster. Act faster. James, the brother of Jesus, would say this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Jesus will speak about it. Do something. That's what I love about Madison Church. You always do something, even today. You talked about the, the things you give to that really bring change in the society. Many of you know here Bishop Walter Harvey. He's really kind of spiritual father of Milwaukee, and he leads or he did lead one of the largest Afri predominantly African-American churches in Milwaukee. And he and I formed a friendship when I was in ministry there, and we would go around speaking on racial rec reconciliation all the time. We would teach seminars on it, we'd speak in, in, in different venues about it. And finally, after about a year of that, we both kind of looked at each other and said, we're kind of tired of speaking about it. Let's, let's actually do something. Let's actually put this thing into action. And so Walter, I said, Walter, what do you think? He said, well, we're farther down the road on this than you are. We, we actually already have a team ready uh, to develop microeconomic opportunities for people of color in the Sherman Park uh, area of Milwaukee. But we just can't get over that hump. We need some resources. We need some capital to, 
to do something we want to do. And here's what we want to do, Jason. So in this area of Milwaukee, there's, and actually I lived in that area, but, and I, I knew this, but he said, there's a lot of caterers. There's a lot of chefs, but they don't have access to a commercial kitchen in order to make their businesses thrive. So there's this, there's this building across the street. It's an abandoned building, but it used to be the hair salon for most of the Milwaukee Bucks players, which is awesome, the barbershop for them. But it's ours. We just need to renovate it with all sorts of commercial kitchen equipment and get somebody to lead this thing, to direct it. I said, well, we have the resources. You have the vision. I have a person, I think, who can direct it. Why don't we just do it? And so we did, and... And the Journal of Sentinel has since written a couple articles recently about it. Now what started out as that dream of Walter Harvey's now has 40 uh, chefs working out of that kitchen with a waiting list of 220 people. A waiting list of 220 people. And these chefs there are starting their own businesses own, uh, and, and moving out of that space to give it to other people so that other people can have that chance. And now they're starting a second site, but they're not just doing it for their own benefit those groups of chefs who are in need themselves give over 8,000 meals away every month to people in need in Milwaukee, to people who can't afford food. So how can we act faster? How can we speak louder? How can we honor better? But the final thing that we have to do, and it goes back to where this series started, if we want to have a kingdom perspective on politics, we have to love deeper. We have to love deeper. At the, on one of the walls of my house, you'll see this picture. If you can get it up there. It just says, love always wins. And Joy, my wife, loves this because her first name is actually love. Her second name is Joy. And so when we're in an argument, she always points to the sign that love always wins. And it's actually true. She does always win. But this is what the Bible talks about, that love, it always wins. Paul would say, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm just a gong or a symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and knowledge, now if I have faith that can move the mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And Jesus would say this in a more simpler way. So simply by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Everyone will know you're part of this kingdom if you love one another. Love always wins. Sometimes Republicans win, and sometimes they don't. But love always wins. Sometimes Democrats win, sometimes they don't. But love always wins. So how is it possible to have a church where Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, and everybody else under the sun can come together in one big mission? Why? Because love always wins. See, we don't follow a leader who rides a blue donkey or a red elephant. We follow a leader who carried a cross, who chose humility over power, who chose sacrifice over stature. And on the cross, people thought he had lost, but his mission was just beginning. Because love always wins. And one day, one day, every president, every king, every queen, every prime minister, every governor, 
every local official, every mom, every dad, every student, every baker, every CEO, every single person to ever walk the face of the earth will bow before this true king. And they'll realize that love always wins. But until that day, that king of love has said, would you bring that kingdom up here, down there to earth, and show them what I'm all about.